Attention all personnel. Incoming podcast. This is MASH Matters. It's MASH Matters. I'm Ryan Patrick, and this is Jeff Maxwell. Hello, Jeff. Oh, this is Jeff Maxwell. Oh, no, that's... This is Jeff Maxwell. This That's is Jeff Maxwell. You are this Jeff is, Maxwell. You, you, you am, you am Jeff Maxwell. No, no, <laughs> I'm our Jeff Maxwell. Today, the part of Jeff Maxwell will be played by Jeff Maxwell. <laughs> oh, I can't wait. I love that guy. This is the podcast about MASH. You have a guy who loves the show. You have a guy who was on the show. And today you also get a guy who wrote and produced the show. Yeah. Mr. Alan Katz. Yeah. What a guy. His career path is incredible. How he started, where he started, and then how he got to writing for some of the greatest television shows in history, including, of course, MASH, is quite a journey. He's going to tell that story. He's also going to tell us about a film that he made. Uh, it's it's kind of an unprecedented thing where the first movie he ever wrote, he actually got it produced and he was the star. <laughs> There's just a lot of fun stuff here. And his wife actually actually was on MASH as well. And you're going to find out who she played. And you're going to find out how a box of popcorn helped create his career. So without further ado, please welcome to MASH Matters, Alan Katz. Any listeners right now who were tuning in, hoping to hear an interview with Alan J. Katz, the former American ambassador to Portugal. I'm sorry to disappoint you, but this is Alan Katz, the writer, Mm -hmm. producer, screenwriter, actor, essayist, uh, fill in the blank, jack of all trades. Alan Katz, thank you for being on MASH Matters. I wish I could speak Portuguese. (laughs) <laughs> I could surprise you. But it would be in English. You also didn't mention the chief financial officer of Guggenheim Securities. Oh, oh that's right. I mean that Alan Katz. And there, there's another one on Antiques Roadshow. That's right. One of the appraisers. And there's a gynecologist uh guy I can't say that this morning. <laughs> Gynecological. It makes me uncomfortable too. Yeah, I, I don't want to go there. <laughs> family show. Alan, how are you? I'm fine so far. You know, uh, we love talking to anybody who had any connection whatsoever with MASH, and you had a big part to play in, it looks like season five was your big season. Is that right? That was it. So before we get into MASH, let's back up and give a Reader's Digest version of where you came from and how you got into show business and what eventually led you to your writing career. See, that was good. I was going to ask him that too. That was really good. You want, I can answer it twice. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> That'd be great. Yeah. <laughs> I, I grew, my father was in vaudeville. So oh. in our household, comedy was sort of like the medium of exchange. Hmm. I have an older brother and a younger sister and it was comedy. It was jokes. It was dialect, uh, dialects. It was all that sort of stuff. So I knew a lot about comedy before I even decided to try to become a writer. And I ended up having no career before I was in my early 20s. I was a college dropout. It was easy to drop out because I wasn't in very much. <laughs> but I, I was a, I was a dropout and I got a job at a small ad agency in Chicago called Hervis Binzer and Churchill. It was small. It was a, a boutique shop, but they liked my brand of comedy. I, I put together some uh, some samples Pictures I cut out of magazines and just wrote some headlines. I didn't know what the hell I was doing, but apparently they didn't either. So so they hired me and they were about to pitch Ovaltine, 
Ovaltine had a new product out that was like a popcorn snack kind of thing. And they were letting all the major agencies in Chicago pitch, see if they could come up with something, come up with a name, come up with an idea, something or other. And I worked with an art director who was one of the agency owners. It was a small agency. It was about seven, eight people and came up with Screaming Yellow Zonkers. So if anybody knows what that is, if you're still alive and you know what it is, it was a popcorn snack and it came in a black box with copy and illustrations on every panel. Yeah. Front, back, top, bottom, won a a number of advertising awards, design awards, ended up doing some animated commercials for it. They won awards. I did a voice for that stuff. I wrote them and produced them. It was a small agency. They let you do whatever you wanted to do. And then while I'm at the agency, and I've been there for a total of maybe six months when all this stuff happened, I got a call from George Slaughter, hmm. a big producer out here in, in uh, Los Angeles. Yeah, legend. Yeah. Yeah. He'd done a bunch of other things, and he was putting together a show called Laughing. So someone says, there's a producer from uh, Los Angeles on the phone. He wants to talk to you. So the, so the, the Screaming Yellow Zonkers box, he wants to see whether you're interested in coming to Los Angeles and meeting with him, seeing if you want to work on a new television series. And I hung up on him. <laughs> but, course, you know, that, that sort of stuff really doesn't happen. You don't get a phone call returned, let alone getting one answered. Yeah. But George called me back and flew me to L.A., by that time, I had a handful of samples, Screaming Yellow Zonker stuff, but also other ads, commercials and stuff. I worked with a, in this short span of time, I worked with a lot of people from Second City. There were voices I knew. You know, I sort of hung out with people who did that sort of thing, comedy performers and actors and writers and whatever. But there weren't that many in Chicago and they didn't have contacts. So at any rate, he flew me out. I met with them. They hired me. And I worked on the show for six years, I guess. Wow. Wow. Pretty cool. And and what they did was they teamed you up. And so my first writing partner on the show was a guy named Larry Siegel. And Larry wrote for Mad Magazine, Mm -hmm. one of the original writers for Mad Magazine. He also wrote The Mad Show. He had done That Was the Week That Was. You know, I'm going back in in history before. I think there were only 17 letters in the alphabet (laughs) when I started. Uh huh. Yeah. And he was great to work with. He was a uh, a malcontent, but a talented malcontent. And it was great because uh, I had to work with him, pitch with him. And he got three times as much money as I did. But we were a team. And I was grateful. I was grateful to be working with him. And at the same time, I partnered up off the show with another young writer on the show named Don Rio, who became my writing partner and I his for several years after that. But we were, we wrote outside of MASH. And Don, he performed stand-up with Slappy White, an mm. African-American. Mm. And yeah. he, he wrote for him and performed stand-up for him. And uh, and Slappy used to be partners with Red Fox mm. as an act. And, mm-hmm. and, and so Don, through Slappy, got us an interview. And we started to write Sanford and Sons while we were on Laughing. How about that? And that got us all in the family, Mary Tyler Moore show. And so... Laughing was a, uh, it, it launched, it launched careers. Yeah. Wow. All because of a screaming yellow zonkers treat. Yes. Right. That's an amazing story. Yeah, really. Yeah. I, I wonder how George Slaughter found, did he just go into a store and go, oh, let's get some popcorn. Well, there, there are a couple of different stories about that. I, I, I don't know which is the truthful one, but my understanding was that 
Gary Owens, ah. the voice of the voice of laughing when they were putting that together, called George and said he was in a supermarket and he saw this thing and it was really funny and brilliant. And the rest of that, he said, if you could find the, whoever wrote this, you should reach out to him because they were putting together an eclectic group of writers. But George would, would be happy to find somebody who was talented that didn't cost a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I just want to go back quickly about your dad was in vaudeville. I, I'm fascinated by that. I mean, because I know Alan Alda's father was in vaudeville and Alan is a young kid. You know, they brought him on the stage. Right, right. I, I, was he had to be a performer? Was he a singer or dancer or comic? Or? He was a dancer. He was a tap dancer. Oh, wow. Hmm. How cool. And they, he, it was a, a, a group, a group. It was a team. Well, it was three of them. So I don't know what you call it, but it was Mills, Malcolm and Mills. And he was he was one of the Mills brothers. <laughs> I sorry for making myself laugh. I had never thought about that. <laughs> um, they did synchronized tap dance together, the three of them. Hmm. That's that's what they did. But also when they performed, when they went on the road and I never saw them perform on the road, they did comedy in between. They did, you know, they did a little song and dance pattern and mm -hmm. that sort of thing. So that's where the timing and the joke telling and all the mm -hmm. rest of the stuff. Okay. Uh, mm -hmm. Okay. So, so like you say, sitting around the dinner table, that would have been sort of the, the spirit of your life then. That's what you, what you were picking up from everybody. Right. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. I, I just remember as a kid growing up and watching the Ed Sullivan show and my dad pointing out who had good stage presence, ah. who was comfortable on stage, who knew how to wait for a laugh. I mean, I'm, I'm probably six years old, seven years old. He'd say, you know, you shouldn't start with a new song that you've recorded. Nobody's heard about it. Go give them a standard that they know that they can see. So all that show business lore, that show business uh, concept of how you perform and what you do and how you do it. Uh, was there. And, my, and my dad told jokes and my dad did a lot of different dialects. So I heard that at home. Wow. Very cool. So you've not only uh, done wonderful television shows and written and produced television shows, but you also have done feature films, which uh, two of them are <laughs> very interesting to me. Um, and we talked uh, several years ago, we actually talked about one of them. I don't remember which one we were talking about, but you know, there was talk about raising money for various films and things like that, which you have to do if you want to make a feature. You gotta you gotta pay for it and somebody's gotta raise money to do it. You know, I, I was so used to with working in television and doing variety shows, did the uh, did the share show, variety show, mm -hmm. not only laughing, but we did we did a bunch of things. We did a bunch of roasts, but the movie business was so different because I wrote my first script and my agent said to me, What what am I supposed to do with this? Oh. I said, well, I thought I thought maybe get somebody to produce it, to sell it. I said, you know, that's really tough. He said, you know, you're you and Don Rio are, are a commodity in television. You know, we're waiting for it reminds me of Tootsie when Dustin Hoffman is talking to Sidney Pollack and Sidney Pollack says to him, what do you want from me? And Dustin Hoffman says, I want you to get me a job. And Sidney Pollack says, I'm your agent. I don't get you jobs. I field offers. Yeah. Oh. And that's that's what yeah. our agents were looking for. They were looking, we were we were a hot commodity. They wanted people to call and say, are they available? Rather than calling on and saying, Do you have any work for these guys? Right, right. The, the movie you're talking about was the the it, it was actually an interesting way of getting into screenwriting because it was the first screenplay I ever wrote. It ended up getting produced. Mm. 
I borrowed some offices, an an office from some guys who bricked some Brits who had a place called Wits End. They were very successful comedy writers and writers. And I just knew them through a mutual friend. And they had some office space and I was writing there. And Marty Feldman's office was the floor above. And I knew Marty a little bit because he had guested on the share show. And I performed in a sketch with him. And I had been over to his house a couple of times and we became really good friends. And so Marty came downstairs and wanted to go to lunch. And he said to me, "Uh, so what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm working on a screenplay. Would you be interested in reading it? He said, well, yeah, yeah, sure. He said, tell me what it is. I said, it's called The Hunchback of UCLA. (laughs) And he laughed and he said, God, that sounds really funny. What's it about? And I told him, I said, it's just sort of like a the hunchback of Notre Dame, except it's some guy that they found in a bell tower here. And he's, uh, you know, he's, he's feral. He doesn't, he was brought up here. And, and I started to tell him the story. And I said to him, you know, maybe I could get this made if you'd agree to play that part. Mm-hmm. And Marty said, well, you know, it takes a long time to get a mo- movie done. He said, but, but I know you, I've known you for a long time. Why don't you play that part? Oh, my gosh. And I said, wow. well, I don't think I could sell it with me in it. He said, well, you haven't tried, have you? And I said, no, he says, try it, try it. If you want to do it and you think you could do a good job with it, try it. So I said, okay. <laughs> so I ended up getting the, the film made with me in the lead. Although I was offered, there are two stories with this. One was I at some point in the film before, before we got into production, but when the, when the deal was made, I was offered a million dollars not to be in it. <laughs> By who? Who who did that? <laughs> I got the information from um, Arnon Milshan, who was the who was the exec producer, who had done a number of huge films. He's a he's a he's a force to reckon with, and uh, he was the one who told me. And he said, "If I were you, I'd pass on this. You really get a chance to star in your own film. I support you in this." He paid for a screen test mm. for me, and 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 they got Pam Dauber. To play the girl in the in the film opposite me, she didn't she didn't do the feature, but in the screen test. And Arnon put up the money and and took it to uh, Vestron. And because of Arnon, because of who he was, they 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 agreed to make it. Wow. Well, here's here's my other story about the film, and then if you want me to shut up, I will. So now we get the go ahead on the film, and I had because I had done some radio voiceover stuff, I had to join SAG and. I couldn't taft hardly it, which meant that, you know, I just couldn't get a one-time shot at it. So I had to join the Screen Actors Guild. So I go down to the SAG office and you'll know how long ago this is. They didn't have, they had things on file, but they didn't have computers. Mm. So at, at one point they said to me, what's the, what's the name you're going to be working under? And I said, Alan Katz. And I spelled it out for whatever they said. There is an Alan Katz in SAG. You'll have to use a different name. And I said, well, wait, I've been I've been working for six, seven years now as a writer. I've written and produced. I I also am an AFTRA. It was before the they had they had merged. I said, so I've got that. I was in the producers guild, a couple of other things. I said, I've got a track record. My my name, he said, they said, well, Michael Fox had to do it. He had to become Michael J. Fox. There are a number of people who had to change their name because their names because we have a bylaw that says you cannot use the same name as somebody else in SAG. So I said, okay, and I filled out a new form and I put down my name as starring Alan Katz. <laughs> and they didn't get the irony in it. They just said, okay. <laughs> I have my original SAG card, which says starring Alan Katz. <laughs> That's, That's awesome. 
That is fantastic. That's fantastic. <laughs> so before we start talking about match, I do want to talk just a, just a little bit more about this movie. The movie is called Big Man on Campus. The, yes. The, the title that you had originally was not the title that was used. Well, you know, that was so it was so crazy because the studio said, well, we may get sued by UCLA. And I said, well, uh, first of all, that's free publicity. Am I not mistaken? Right. They said, yeah. yeah. And, it said, and it's and, and it's I don't think they can sue you. You're doing you're doing a spoof. You're not. You're not saying that that somebody on the faculty murdered somebody. This is just a, a silly movie that nobody would possibly believe. Let's just wait and see what happens. And they changed the name without telling me. Oh, really? They had the right to do that, and it became Big Man on Campus. And I remember when it was about to come out on video, I called one of the local video stores and I asked if it was. And they said we have Big Men on Campus in our adult section here. <laughs> I also heard it was released in the in the UK as the Hunchback Hairball of LA. Yes, that's from mm. yeah. It's got different names all over the place. But it's gone on to really be kind of a cult classic. It is. It, it's it's amazing. Every once in a while, if I take a look, and somebody's posted the whole film on YouTube. Oh. <laughs> and it's also rentable other places, but nobody did a high def version of it because they figured. You know, it's expensive to do that, and, and who wants it? Well, after this podcast comes out, boy, oh you boy. better get ready for the 4K HD version to be released. Yeah. Okay. Blu-ray. <laughs> That's wild that not only was it your first screenplay that you wrote, you were able to get the first screenplay you ever wrote produced, and with you in the lead, that just doesn't happen. It doesn't happen twice, I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> It was so crazy. I remember at a screening of it, some woman, I, I don't, I didn't, I didn't get her name or I don't remember it. I barely remember mine. Uh, she came up to me and she said, you know, I really, really enjoyed this movie. You were wonderful in it. She said, you know, I read it at one point when I was, when I, I was doing features over here and I loved the script. And I said, well, why didn't you ever reach out to me? She said, well, we weren't doing stuff like that. And, you know, and then, then I found out it was already being made. And I said, I write other things. <laughs> you could have you could have called me. I'm not dead. Right. And uh, that, that's kind of what that's sort of like what happens. You know, you do something and you do a pilot. It doesn't work. And either nobody ever calls you again or they don't make eye contact with you or something. It's very uh, hmm. sort of strange. Well, on behalf of the big man on campus fans out there, thank you for bringing us Bob Maluga Luga 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 Luga. You got it. Yes. You got it right. It's Bob Maluga to the fourth power. Yeah. <laughs> Look at look at look at look at look at. Now let's talk about Mash. How did you end up writing and producing on Mash? Well, uh, I I don't remember how we first got in there. We got in the season before. Don and I got in the season before because we love Mash. Who didn't? And we we wanted to pitch a couple of episodes and see whether we could get in. We had enough of a track record that we that we got in the door. But it turned out that Larry Gelbart was not around and. One of the advantages of MASH was that by this time, they knew in advance that they were going to be picked up for the next season. So they were able to stockpile, if not scripts, certainly stories that they had worked out that they were either going to write during the next season or give out to writers to bring them in. So when we did this one episode, nothing happened. But then we got a call as they were putting together the staff for the next season Larry Gelbart had left. Right. So they were looking to bring in some writer or writer producers 
to come in who knew how to produce a comedy show and knew how to write it, knew the ins and outs of the rest of that stuff. And they and they brought us in. When we were asked to come in, we were asked to come in and meet with Gene Reynolds because Larry had gone. Now, I knew Larry's history and his background, especially I knew a lot about him, about him from Marty Feldman because he worked with Marty Feldman. They were good friends and and. And I knew that Marty idolized him, as did uh, Larry Gelbot, as did most writers that I knew. So we came in, and we were just told we were going to meet with Gene Reynolds. There was no internet. There was no way to look up Gene Reynolds, and our agents didn't tell us who he was. They just said he was the producer of the show. Huh. He was going to move up to exec produce. Maybe he was already doing it. Want to bring in some writer producers for the show. So we said, great. Now, we know nothing about his background. Well, nothing. He was a child actor. He had worked with, you know, with Errol Flynn and, and Spencer Tracy. And I mean, the list was, uh, it would take your your podcast mm-hmm. just to give you the name of every famous star he had worked with yeah. as, as an actor. And he had also wrote and produced television series, but I didn't know about it. Don and I didn't know about it. And we didn't know about that for weeks into the show. We got hired based on what we had written before and based on our interview with uh, with Gene, who seemed to be a really lovely guy, but I didn't know anything about him hmm. other than he, he it was up to him whether to hire us or not. So it was like a first date. Yeah, so <laughs> yeah. I, I used my first date material. <laughs> I went out with him for six months. It didn't work yeah. out, but the, but the show did. <laughs> no, that's too bad. So sorry. So, th- so, that's, <laughs> so that's how we got on the show. And there was only one other staff writer on the show. And it was a guy named Jay Folb, F-O-L-B. Mm-hmm. And Jay was just a lovely guy, but very quiet, didn't mix it up a lot, just kind of kept to himself, very decent guy. And I think Gene liked him and wanted to work with him because Larry was there for all the tumult and Jay was there to sort of like for the even keel part of it. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And we really liked him. He ended up and he had written some other shows before. I looked him up. But he was not like a major staff writer on other shows. And his personality wasn't such that he was going to be able to I think, interface with other writers and give them notes and sit around and kick jokes out like that. He was better quietly to himself. And he's no longer with us. He's no longer with me. He's not, he was never with you. Right. No. <laughs> and atypically, that was it was it was so it was Gene Reynolds, who was not primarily a writer, and Jay Folb, who was a script supervisor. That was it. I mean, you compare mm-hmm. that to shows now that have, as, as I remember, I, I'm trying to think of what I was thinking of that was a, a show at the time, but whether it was Laverne and Shirley or something, they probably had 15, 20 writers. So you were, you know, you've written all these other TV shows. When you got to MASH and you started doing the scripts, was there was there a big difference uh, in working with MASH and all those actors or all the themes that they were talking about than, than it was with Roseanne or Blossom or Broda? Or was, there, was there a difference? We had worked at, on some MTM shows. We had worked on, uh, I'm trying to think, of, well, we worked on Mary Tyler Moore and we, we wrote and produced Rhoda. And I wouldn't say it's a, the same philosophy, but a similar one in that the writers and performers interacted with each other sort of in a way that that they do in the theater. Mm. You do a run through, you take a look at it, you have some notes, you talk about it, you do whatever can be helpful. And then you then you move on and you, you see a run through and you do some more notes and you do some changes and things like that. MASH was different in that there were very few outside characters. So the actors on MASH 
they knew their characters better than the writers did, certainly better than Don and I did, and sometimes better than Gene did, who was part of the development of the show. Mm-hmm. Just because they lived with the characters and they heard the characters' voices, they lived them. So it was very different. And also because we had so much lead time, by the time we got to the table with any scripts to read, the actors knew the characters. I used to say that anybody could pretty much direct that show. Just walk in there. <laughs> you didn't have to worry about what the costumes were going to be. Everybody was right. They're all green. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the actors knew what they were doing. And unless there were some moments or some attitudes or th- something like that, the actors usually got it themselves. And so the, there wasn't much to direct other than to take a look at a first edit. And you had an editor who would work on, on almost every episode of the show. So the, the editor would give you a, a first cut that was pretty damn good. And then you just take a look if there was something that you didn't like or you thought, oh, I thought maybe I saw a better take of something like that. Can you look and see what they're going? And we, were, and we edited it on, on a moviola. We edited it on film. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we had we had the advantage of a number of other shows in that we had so much lead time, we had scripts, and we weren't rushing. We didn't have to work late at night. The other thing was we we worked on film. We did one camera film, so we didn't have to worry about audiences. We sweetened based on what they thought the timing of the material should be. Mm-hmm. Even if we thought something was a great joke, we didn't hold for 25 minutes while the audience laughed. I mean, 25 seconds, the way they might have done on the Carol Burnett show, or they might have done it all in the family when Sammy Davis Jr. comes in and you cut back and forth and you show facial expressions with Carol O'Connor. A, we didn't have the luxury of doing that. And B, it wasn't the style of the show. We weren't milking the comedy. It just happened to be part of what was going on. Wait, you're saying there was no audience? Then where did all those laughs come from? Came from uh, the writers when the checks arrived. <laughs> Well, the the feeling was, it wasn't our feeling. And I remember we had one meeting where we tried to dispense with the laugh track. There were a couple of episodes where it was done, where we said, this is too serious to do. We don't have people sitting up in the trees laughing. Let's let's do it. But the network said, people are so used to hearing laughs that it feels like it's not funny, or it feels like it's hollow, or there's something missing. So the only place where there was consistency, no laughs, is in the OR, in the operator. Right, Right. And that was Larry and Gene. Yeah. They couldn't push it for the rest of the episode. You know, I don't know if you you may or may not agree with me, but based on my experiences with both Larry Gelbart and Gene Reynolds, I've always said that I don't think we'd be talking about the show called MASH if it weren't for them. Uh, number one, uh, obviously, the genius of Larry Gelbart, and quite frankly, the genius of of uh, Gene, who was able to so elegantly kind of lead that show where it went. Right. And I I, I used to watch him, you know, deal with some you know pretty high power folks uh, sitting around and doing what they had to do, and you think he, he really he really elegantly led everybody in the right direction and got it when they needed to lead it and he needed to take back and lead it himself. I think that's a rare commodity. It was, we had no idea, especially because we worked closely with Gene because Larry had left, Yeah, had no idea how incredibly talented and what a decent human being he was. Yes. yes. It was like with Larry, but, but, I was so flattered that Gene ultimately became a friend mm-hmm. and we mm-hmm. hung out together and we had lunches together and whatever. And I was just flattered that I always have been when there are people who, who are so incredibly talented and I stand back and I say to myself, what do they like about me? <laughs> 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 I think they can do better. Yeah, but, uh, 
So according to IMDb, you were the producer for season five. So the 24 episodes of season five, and there are two writing credits on that season attributed to you written by for movie tonight. And then teleplay by the abduction of Margaret Houlihan as a producer. Did you also have a hand in punching up other scripts as well? It was mainly that really by the time we got, we got hired for this season, They probably had 15 scripts, stories in one way, shape, or form so that we we contributed. But when we came up with a story, Gene liked to give out episodes to freelance writers because that's how they made a living. And he was very good about that. So when we came in, we would rewrite every single episode from page one. Mm, Wow. It didn't mean that they weren't good. Right. We would punch it up. We went, we counted and... Every script went through minimum seven drafts. Really? Wow. I didn't know that. Wow. Seven. Holy moly. First, we would read read whatever scripts came in, no matter what source, the scripts that had been commissioned. And then we would individually make notes. And then we would sit down. It would be just the four of us. It would be Gene, Jay Fulb, Don Rio, and myself. And that was it. We'd sit around and we'd read the scripts out loud. But at the same time, we'd say, okay, a page one or sometimes we just we'd start off with story. Say, what'd you think about the script? You say, yeah, I liked it. I think there's something missing from the second act. I don't know exactly what's going on here, but I lost track of this. And they said, yeah, I did too. Or when we get there, let's talk about that. Hmm. So they said, okay, page one. And you'd start to read and you'd say, I, somebody say like, Margaret's line, I think, uh, what if we say this instead of this? I think it could be stronger. And then we'd start to pitch just as if we were all writing the script together. How about this? How about that? And Gene was the one with the pencil. Whenever it was decided what the final line was, he'd say, this this really works. So we would go through the entire script, and then we would sometimes give it back with notes to whoever had written the first draft. Hmm. And we'd have that sort of stuff. And we would leave some spaces to say, we think that this scene could be a little bit stronger. Could you punch up Frank Burns a little bit? Can you do this? Can you do that? Do this and do that. And or sometimes we would just go through it ourselves and just hang on to it, put it in a drawer, move on to the next script, and then go back to that. Especially because we never were really quite sure what order we would shoot the scripts in. But we would probably have, by the time we started production, we'd have maybe 10, 15 scripts already, maybe 10 written and another 10 in the works. So we were never up against it. We had that great luxury. And we had the luxury of, as I said before, of actors who knew their characters really well, and Gene Reynolds, who knew all the characters and knew what had been done before and uh, had a really good ear for comedy. He, and, you know, we talked to uh, Mike Farrell, and Mike Farrell was so stunned when he first got on the show because he said, I'd never been on a show where we could sit around and we had a, you know, we read the script and uh, then writers participate. Yeah, yeah I've heard. And then the writers would, would say, well, is there anything you like or don't like you want to change or want to talk about? And he said, I, I was stunned that they wanted to hear my opinion. Yeah, he said, that never happened to me before. I know. He said that he said the same thing to me. And he said that at Jane's Memorial as well. Yeah. Yeah. It was just, it was very different. It was so respectful. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yes. Yes. And, uh, and and so decent. And it made the show better anyway. Yeah. I mean, people yep. love to come to work. People love to contribute. I think I told you this one story uh, about we get a call from the stage from Alan Alda, who said, uh, can I come upstairs and talk to you guys about something that is uh, 
he rarely, if ever, called. So we had no idea what was going on. So we said, is there a problem? He said, no, not really, but I'd like to talk to you guys. And I, I don't want to do it downstairs here where all the other actors and staff are. Can we just do it upstairs? And he said, right. And I'm just wondering what's going on. So he comes into the office and it's the writing staff. It's the four of us. We could fit in a phone booth. And he said, um, in this scene with one of the nurses, I'm coming on to her and she's going to go into the uh, tent with me and we're going to, you know, fool around. And he said, I have no problem with that at all. He said, but it seems to me from what's in the script that I have no relationship with her at all. I don't, I don't use her name. I, 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 there's no history there. It's just like she's a piece of meat and I'm just going to go do something and she's going to go along with it. And he said, it makes me uncomfortable. He said, so here's what I'm thinking. It doesn't have to be changed by much. One line could do it for me. And I've written several, if you'd like to pick any one of these, and that and that would be great. It would really solve a problem for me. He said, if you don't like any of the lines and you want to come up with something of your own, I'm happy to do it. And if you want me to do what's in the script, I'll find a way to make it work. Wow. I don't know what else. If I didn't say wow, I should have. But yeah. I, certainly, I <laughs> yeah. certainly thought it. Yeah. Yeah. How respectful and how decent mm-hmm. points out something that he says, it may not be a problem for you. It is for me, but it's not one that's not solvable. And if you don't have it as a problem, we'll, we'll just move on and I'll find a way to make it work. It doesn't get it. It doesn't get any better. It than doesn't that. get any better. No, I'm guessing that that probably wasn't the norm on other sets. <laughs> oh, no. Look, I worked on Roseanne. <laughs> need, I, need I say more? Enough no. said. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's it is still a family. Mm-hmm. I mean, whenever Alan comes into town, we all get together and whatever. But when he, when he doesn't, and there are other people, we've been to Mike Farrell's house recently, and and he's been here. And the pandemic sort of slowed things down a bit, but I'm friendly with Loretta Squit, and you know, the mm-hmm. it, it just is one of those kinds of things that it's a family, and nobody has any hidden feelings, mm-hmm. negative feelings. It was always great. They were so appreciative and kind. And friendly and grateful. So the two episodes I mentioned earlier, right, you right. have the written by of the teleplay. First of all, what's the difference between written by and teleplay by? Well, the written by, if I'm not mistaken, means that the entire episode story and script were yours. Okay. When we did these two episodes, they were about they were the only two that were left when we got on the show. We were hired as writer producers, but we were really hired as rewriter producers. Yeah. Yeah. In other words, to whatever has come in. We were to we were to improve. That's what you do on any sitcom. You do it with your own scripts. So Gene had come up with both of those storylines. So those two episodes in particular, do you have any memories of those? I know that Movie Tonight is a very well-loved, I mean, both of the episodes are well-loved. Yeah. The abduction of Margaret Houlihan is a Colonel Flag episode. And yeah. MASH fans love Colonel Flagg. Mm-hmm. And then Movie Tonight is just a different kind of an episode in that a lot of it takes place in, uh, you know, it's just them in the mess tent. In the Wild West. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and having fun and just messing around. There's not yeah. a, there's not really a plot. Yeah. There's no uh, conflict and resolution. It's just it much more slice of life. Yeah. Yes. And I love those kinds of episodes. The real yeah. advantage of MASH and, and we look, I, I can't take credit for it. I can take credit for is being in the right place at the right time is that you could virtually do any kind of comedy on that show. 
with the exception of anachronistic stuff and stuff that was off color, but you could do physical comedy, you could do verbal stuff, you could do poignant stuff, you could do anything you want to within the context of the show. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it was Gene's idea for the show. I think it, when we started, he just said, we'll do a, we'll do a movie and we'll do all the things that happen in between to make it start and stop and bring in wounded and all the rest of that stuff. And uh, we'll just do it and, and be, and we'll have everybody comment on my Clementine, you know, the old movie. And was that the original movie that you wrote into the script or did you have to change that? No, that was the one we wrote into the script. I think that probably Gene checked it out to find out what would be available, what you could use. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you, of course, had to find something that had been around long enough that it might have been traded back and forth from uh, from unit to unit where somebody would be able to say, oh, yeah, we got that. We get the. Yeah. We switch the reels or it's running backwards or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> it had such a, a warmth to it. Yeah. Um, because everybody really, you know, participated and everybody was together. And it was a real, uh, very warm episode, really was. Well, everybody had, a, they had a shared experience. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it, and it took you somewhere else. It took you to to another place in another time. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of the references when Radar gets up to do his impressions and he's doing Jack Benny and, you know, I mean, right, it's, right. It, it does take you back to a different time when these things were referenced. Uh, and I really enjoy that. Yeah, And look, the, the show is 50 years ago. Yes. <laughs> I know. Right. <laughs> 50 years ago. If I could do the math, that's like half a century. So it, it, it's, it really is amazing for all of us to start to look back and to think about where the time went. It seems to me um, Jeff, tell me, how long ago does it emotionally feel to you? Uh, yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. Yesterday. Yeah, I know. It's 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 really remarkable. Yeah, it seems like yesterday. I mean, and especially now when we're doing the podcast, I kind of can't get away from it. Yeah. <laughs> no matter how hard you try. Uh, yeah. How I try, because uh, we're, you know, thinking about people and what we're going to do and the podcast and so and forth. You think about what was going on in your life at the time. and then Absolutely. Start, yeah. No. Think about and you see yourself on screen. At least I, I do every once in a while with big man on campus. And I just mm -hmm. keep thinking. Yeah. Who was who, who that? <laughs> I, I see, man. God, he was so cute and his hair looked good. I mean, yeah, that was yeah. pretty much what I was involved with. Yeah, I just, I remember once, and that wasn't too long ago, somebody had taken a picture of myself and my wife. All the, my wife, separate from me, was a, a, a semi regular on MASH. She played BJ's wife. She played Peg. Oh, really? You're kidding. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Really? That's your wife. Was and is my wife. When we get together, we got together. Mike came to a screening of something I did, and he showed up. And his current wife, Shelly Fabre, was there. Mm -hmm. And his former wife, um, Judy. Judy Farrell, right. Yeah. And my wife were there. All three were there. And I said to Mike, my God, all three of your wives are here. That <laughs> 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 could be unraveling. Gee, yeah, how about yeah. that? I had no idea. That's interesting. Would you untie your wife and bring her down so we can do a, <laughs> do a little interview with her? Every time she sees me, I bring her down. <laughs> my wife is on the straight and narrow now. My wife is a practicing psychologist. Oh, so that's a cool. What's it like living with a therapist, though? A psychologist is that is that weird? I mean, do you get a good rates or does it is it a strange? <laughs> <laughs> I can't afford the, the help that she's given me. <laughs> yeah. I don't listen to it, but it's really good advice. 
Well, speaking of family, did I read too that your sister appeared on several episodes of MASH as well? Yeah, she did a couple of those too. And it was, and that was again through, uh, this one was through Burt Metcalf, who was, uh, when we first started, he was, a, he was a line producer, but everybody had something else. Burt was a, a working actor and a working producer before he did MASH. He was in, I'm trying to think, it was one of the Gidget movies. He was, it was like a, mm-hmm. had a, had a big part to play, play in that. So it's, what can I tell you? Everybody had a former life. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's true. Um, so are you writing still? Are you writing now? Are you well, still? it's, uh, yes, I am, but I don't, I don't, I haven't had an agent in a long while. Mm-hmm. And so there's hardly any way to get anything out there. And now that I've reached a certain age of maturity, not only am I not considered somebody who somebody wants to, to run a half hour sitcoms series. I don't want to do it any, I've, I've done it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's an exhausting process. And uh, yeah, but I still do. I still do write, but, but I, but I consider that more typing now than actually. writing. <laughs> <laughs> do you still hear from people about mash? No. <laughs> <laughs> All right, next question. I, I, I can make up an answer. No, no, you don't have to. All the time. All the time. My wife says, yeah. shouldn't you be getting a bigger check? And I'd say, well, yeah. you know, I, I did the teleplay, but I didn't come up with stories. So Gene Reynolds got most of that money. <laughs> no, and, and it's been 50 years. So sometimes I get these checks. Jeff, you probably get similar checks, but I get some. I, I've got a file of them. That I get some that where they've compiled all the times that MASH has run in an, in a year in Portugal, France, yeah, Italy, and all the rest of that, and they put all that together so it's just one one thirty nine cent check <laughs> instead of thirty nine individual one cent checks. Right, right. well, a portion of a penny, but some of those are two tenths of two tenths of a cent amazing yeah there was a, i got one for 15 cents one day so that was a very i still have it you still have it you want to you want to sign it over to me yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah you're screwing up somebody's accounting by not cashing that you know that i got one from disney for two cents <laughs> and i waited a month and i called them up and i told them i lost the check and i made them i made them send me a duplicate check <laughs> That's great. <laughs> That's great. And I remember, I mean, postage was probably 35 cents at the yeah. time. Yeah. <laughs> Cost him $11 to send you your two cents. Oh, uh, That's funny. Oh, That's how I spend my time. Alan, thank you for your time today. Before we go. You want to buy a script while you're here? <laughs> Your your people can reach out to our people. Um, We call the podcast MASH Matters because we discuss all matters associated with MASH, but also because MASH matters. It mattered back then. It still matters now, 50 years later. Why do you think that is? Why do you think MASH has such a staying power and still resonates today with people just like it did when it premiered 50 years ago? Well, I think the values of MASH were timeless and decent. Hmm. And I think that. MASH comes across as being timeless and decent. You know, it's you don't think, oh, wait a minute, this is 75 years ago or this is 50 years ago. When we did the show, the scripts were contemporary with what was going on at the time. So you won't get a Donald Trump joke. Mm-hmm. There won't be one. There won't be one that's talking about characters or people who were alive 25, 30 years ago. You won't see costuming 
that feels out of place. Mm-hmm. Unlike other shows that I've worked on, I mean, you go back and you see Rhoda and you say, my God, did people actually dress like that? Yeah. yeah. Some shows have not aged well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was dated when we did it. Right. So it, it, made it, feel, it made it feel contemporary. Yeah. At yeah. least the sensibilities of the show. Mm-hmm. And so that hasn't changed. It may catch on. We can hope. So maybe we could do after, after, after MASH. <laughs> hey, Alan, uh, like Ryan said, we certainly appreciate you being here. Well, I'm happy to do it. Well, it's uh, been a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, y- you guys mean a lot to me because, like I said, everybody's a part of my DNA. And uh, talking with you about the show is a real thrill for me because it was a, a wonderful experience and still is, just remains a, a wonderful experience. And like and like any writer talking about myself is always a pleasure. It's always. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Alan Katz, for spending some time with us today. That was uh, incredible. I mean, seriously, to go from writing for a little advertising agency in Chicago and what you're writing is then seen on the other coast by a star of one of the most popular television series of its time, Laugh-In, and then all of a sudden you're writing for Laugh-In. And then you're writing for Sanford and Son and then All in the Family and Mary Tyler Moore and MASH. I mean, what an incredible path that his career took. It's great. I mean, students uh, of writing and students of wanting to be in the television business, all they have to do is run around and find maybe like a box of crackers or a box of something else and come up with funny things for that box. And who knows? You'll have a whole career. It's just that easy. Funny stuff on a candy bar and boom. You got a contract at Fox. And he's married to Peg Honeycutt. I mean, come on. Give me a break. Come on. How cool is that? You can't make this stuff up. (laughs) So anyway, uh, thank you again to Alan Katz. This has been an absolute blast. And thank you for listening. You can reach out to us as always, mashmatters.com. You can find us on Twitter. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and you can call and leave a voicemail. 513-436-4077. Just keep it under three minutes in length. And you can also email us at mashmatterspodcast at gmail.com. Or you can come over to the house. (laughs) Until next time, here's looking up your old address. Bob, Maluga, Luga, 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 Luga.